Well, I'd like to show you a picture. It was a picture that had a profound impact on me in 1971. It was the end of fourth grade. It was in the month of May. I have subsequently found out I didn't remember for sure. But I was at the end of fourth grade, and I saw this picture, The this picture right here. I know it's small, and you can't really see the writing on it, but it is um, from the back cover of Mad Magazine. I don't know if any of you read Mad Magazine when you were young, but um, I, I read Mad Magazine, and this is The Four Horsemen of the Metropolis. And it's kind of an editorial cartoon. Um, so the, the four horsemen are drugs, graft, pollution, and slums. And I lived in a small town in New Mexico. I didn't know what a metropolis was except Superman lived there. Um, so I didn't know what a metropolis was. I didn't know what graft was. And I'd only heard about the other things, drugs and slums and things like that. So I didn't really get the cartoon. But I loved the painting. It was the most arresting and amazing painting to me. It's like, what? is going on in this picture, these fantastic horses of different colors riding through the sky. And I know I'm not alone. I know that lots of other people have been struck by the imagery in today's passage. Let me show you some other pictures. These come from a couple of minutes of uh, searching online. So this one right here, I didn't, I, the way that it came up in the search, I don't know who the artist is for this one, but it's a, a very... Uh, uh, realistic portrayal of a very fantastic set of events. These are the four horsemen of the, of the apocalypse, uh, the white horse, the red horse, the black horse, and then the pale green horse. So we'll hear more about them. But um, here's another one also from our current era, a um, uh, very uh, nice graphical style there. Christopher Dombris did that picture. Um, the next picture is um, from a Russian artist, Viktor Vaznetsov from 1897. And you can see again, the, the four horsemen, uh, but it, we can keep finding them. Gustave Doré uh, uh, did this engraving in 1865. Um, Benjamin West did the, the picture you see on the cover. There's some detail from that on your cover. Um, Albrecht Dürer, 500 years ago, did this, this engraving, and it's kind of hard to see. Um, Matthias Gerung, also from that same period of time, he painted this picture. And then finally, um, from this series, an uh, artist named Oveco did an illustrated manuscript, and this is from 970, a thousand and one years before that Mad Magazine cover. Artists were fascinated by the imagery of the four horsemen. And my guess is that if we could have a bigger Internet or more time to search it, uh, we'd find that there are artists going back further than that. But these are the ones I found that were really striking to me. Artists have found this passage um, captivating because of this intense imagery of the horses that represent different uh, aspects of doom. And if it is fascinating, it is also unsettling. It is a disturbing image. Um, it speaks of horrors being unleashed on the world. And if, if there are horrors that we can kind of say, well, yeah, but that's for other people in some other time or some other place, we know from, from TV news accounts that it's happening right now in places around the world. People are suffering for their faith. People are being martyred even now in different parts of the world. So it is a disturbing image, but it's very pervasive. Um, I saw in our library book sale, Billy Graham wrote a book about the um, apocalypse, about the uh, revelation, the book of Revelation, and he titled it Approaching Hoofbeats because it is such a vivid image. Clint Eastwood made a movie called Pale Rider. It is this intense image of horrors that are going to be unleashed on the world. And it is captivating, but it is also disturbing. 
And it leads us to the question, why? Why would a good God allow such terrible things to come on the earth? And that is a good question. The reason I can tell you it's a good question is it's the question that underlies the question we see in Scripture. Uh, this is this is not a question that is posed by uh, some modern skeptic or one of the new atheist critics of Christianity. This is a question that underlies the very question we see asked in, in Scripture. The martyrs who have been uh, sacrificed and whose souls are now under the altar, they ask God, how long? They say, I'll give you that there's some purpose. I don't know what the purpose is. I don't know why. But how long is it going to take? How much is enough? When, oh God? If there is some purpose, how much is it going to take? How long, oh God? So what I want to do is look at the scriptures and see how they answer that question. So, if you can get get your scriptures, if you didn't bring a Bible, uh, the 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 words are printed in the the bulletin, and I think they'll be on screen. Or most, uh, I'm, I'm wrong. They won't. We've already done that part, um, so they won't be on screen. Um, but they're uh, in your program, and um, if you've got a Bible or a phone, you can get them there. So um, uh, while you're finding them, uh, let me catch you up. In chapter four, we saw there is this heavenly court that the throne of God is in heaven. And uh, God sits on the throne. He's surrounded by these four living beings. We don't know much about them. They're very hard to picture. And then around them are 24 elders on thrones. And then there are angels and other heavenly creatures beyond that. So that's in chapter 4. In chapter 5, we see that there is a scroll, a scroll that has been sealed up with seven scroll, seven seals. And at first it looks as if no one's going to be able to read it. But then one of the elders points out to John that the lamb who was slain is worthy. He is the only one who is worthy to open the scroll. So that's where we pick up the story in chapter 6. The lamb breaks the first of the seven seals in the scroll. And he hears one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked up and I saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. Now, that doesn't sound so bad. In fact, some people look to a different horse and a different rider. Uh, later on in the book, in chapter 19, I am not persuaded that this is the same rider. That rider is Christ. Um, here the lamb is breaking the seals, so I don't think he's also riding a horse. Um, but also, he uh, keeps strange company if he does. Um, I think that this is uh, a rider who represents um, political uh, uh, political power, the ability to influence nations um, to go out and win a battle. And um, uh, I'm, I'm struck in particular that he is wearing a crown and he is riding a white horse. In the Roman world, the word for white is is candida or, or white. It's where we get our word candidate. If you're going to be a candidate for uh, the Roman Senate or something, you would put in a white toga and that told people that you were candid, you were white, you were honest. It was a sign of somebody who was, had aspirations in the political sphere. And he goes off. He goes away to win battles. He's not doing anything right here. So I think that he represents a po- political power and probably the imperial power of Rome. Uh, the, but he is followed immediately by a second horse. The lamb breaks the second seal and another horse appears. And this one isn't white. This one is the color of blood. He is red. He's fiery red. And his rider is given not a bow, not a distance weapon,
but a sword, a weapon you use right up close and personal. And the authority to take peace from the earth, and there was war and slaughter everywhere. So this war, this one represents military uh, power, military um, activity, um, military fighting. And he is followed by a third, um, a third, a third uh, horseman. The lamb breaks the third seal, and I heard a third living being saying, "Come." I looked up and I saw a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. In the ancient world, scales were what you used to weigh out quantities of goods. Uh, we're going to hear about uh, wheat and barley. But it's also how you weighed out money, because you couldn't necessarily trust some guy shows up with a coin, you don't know what it's worth, so you'd weigh out what it was actually worth as metal. So uh, scales are the sign of economic activity. And he hears a voice from the four living beings say, a loaf of bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay. That's uh, uh, What does that number mean? Well, you know, it's hard for us to get our heads in this place. Uh, it's a, scholars tell us it's about 10 to 15 times the normal price. But don't just think, what if a loaf of bread suddenly cost 15 times as much? Think, what if you are living in extreme poverty and you don't have any extra room in your budget, that it's all you can do to scrape together enough food for today and somebody tells you it's going to start costing 15 times as much. This is not simply, oh, we're going to have to tighten our belts. This is a disaster. This is a catastrophe. This is economic trouble of the worst kind. And when you combine these three, the political, the military, and the economic troubles, what follows behind them? The fourth horse. I heard the fourth living being say, come. I looked up and I saw a color a horse whose color was pale green. This word pale green, um, I looked it up, it's the word chloros. It's where we get chlorophyll like you find in plants. It's where you get uh, Clorox bleach. Um, it's from the chlorine gas, or chlorine gas is named after it. It's a pale green color. And uh, my dictionary told me very helpfully, it's the color of a corpse after a couple of days. And I thought, well, that's a charming image right there out of the Bible. Its rider was named Death, and its companion was the Grave. And these two were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and the famine and disease and wild animals. And at this point, we have to say, stop, enough. Why? Why? Why would God unleash these? It's not clear, actually. John is shying away from the truth he knows, which is that God is the one unleashing them. No one else has the power to unleash the horses. But he says that they are given the authority. They are given a sword. They are given a crown. That someone, God, is given the authority. Someone from among the, the living beings speaks to them and says what they can and cannot do. John doesn't even want to say it, but he knows it's true. God has unleashed these horsemen on the world. So it raises the question, why? Well, we'll have to read some more. But before we do, I'll just say this. Notice what it says. If God is the one unleashing the, these horsemen, recognize a couple of things. First of all, it's not God doing it. Now, this may be uh, splitting hairs, but it's not God who is doing it. The, the picture here is the horsemen are always ready to ride. But for some purpose we have yet to discern, God is letting them ride now. God is letting them slip the chain. The horsemen are always there, always ready to ride. But now, for his purpose, God is allowing them off their chain. The other thing is God is limiting what they can do. They are given authority 
to uh, to uh, uh, to do all these horrors, to win battles and uh, to to bring war and slaughter. But there are limitations. The um, the the economic one, the third one. Um, he hears he hears. Uh, Don't waste the olive oil and the wine. If you think of ancient the ancient world, if a, if an army came through town and they wanted to, you know. Uh, do all the terrible things an invading army would do. One of the things they do is they set fire to the fields. So all the grain would be wiped out. But if they had time and they really wanted to do a lot of damage, they could destroy the vineyards, the, the grapevines and the olive trees. And this is saying, no, there's limitation on how much damage can be inflicted. The grain will grow back in a year, but the olive trees, they could take a decade. They could take a long time to come back. So there's a limitation. When he says, when he says that the two were given authority over one fourth of the earth, he doesn't mean a particular region. He means a quarter of the people on earth. And for us, that's just an impossible number to imagine. How could a quarter of the people be killed? John knew it was totally possible. John knew of events where a quarter of the people would have been killed. In our own history, during the Black Death in Europe, a third of the population died during the Black Death in Europe. God is restraining this. It's not a third. It's only, it's only a fourth. So if God has let the horrors off the chain, he is still constraining how much damage they can do. And then we go on. Um, it's, it's on the insert in the, the program, the blue page. I'm going to skim through the middle section there. Uh, the lamb lifts the, uh, breaks the fifth seal. And now we hear a voice from the martyrs under the, under the altar. And they say, how long? They ask, how long until you judge those who have done this? If there's a reason, Lord, if there is a reason, how much longer is it going to take to achieve your purpose? That's the question they ask. And the answer is not very long at all, because as I watched, the lamb broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake. The sun became dark as black cloth. The moon became as red as blood. Immediately, there is a following response. The answer, like the like the uh, spiritual song says, is not long. How long? Not long. Soon and very soon, God will put an end to the travail. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, those who have been oppressing the martyrs, Try to flee, but they know there is no way to flee. They say, fall on us to the mountains. Hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to survive? So then John says he sees four angels. These are not four horsemen. These are four angels. These are not let loose by God. These are actually messengers of God. And what do they do? They're standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the wrath. Not yet. The wrath's coming in just a moment, but first we have to place the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. And he heard how many were sealed, 144,000 from the different tribes of, of Israel. And then he sees another vision. He says, after this, before I do that, let me, let me, let me back up. Let me, let me answer or attempt to answer the question of the martyrs because because is there an answer? There's no answer I can discern here in the scripture. God does not answer their question. He answers their question, which is how soon? And he answers it very soon. But he doesn't answer the why question, the one that's behind it. That, that why is this going on and how soon will it be over? He answers the how soon will it be over, but he doesn't answer the why. And 
really, you know, doesn't that make sense? Is there an answer? You know, if you think about it, if you're a Christian or you know a Christian who's being thrown to the lions, is there an answer where you'd say, oh, okay, well then go right ahead. Is there any answer that would satisfy you? If your child is dying from starvation, is there an answer that you're going to say, okay, well then go right ahead? If Boko Haram came through your village and kidnapped all the girls, is there an answer that would let you say that's fine? There is no answer, but there is a a part of the answer perhaps. I don't know how many of you have seen this movie, um, Minority Report, uh, Tom Cruise, Steven Spielberg, two thumbs way up. It's a science fiction movie. It's set in this world in which there are people who have ESP powers, and they work for the police force, and they can tell when somebody's about to commit a crime. And so when, when they say somebody's about to commit a murder, the police force roll into action, and they go and they arrest the perpetrator before he does the crime. And that raises the question, what do you do? How do you punish somebody who hasn't committed a crime but was going to? Is it just to punish someone who has not yet committed a crime? This is the question that the Puritans wrestled with. They asked the question this way. I think it's in here. The next, is there another? Oh, okay, well, I'll tell you what the Puritans said. The Puritans said, the same sun that melts the wax hardens clay. They said that God is giving people time to become what they will become. That the sun that melts the soft hearts of those who he will save hardens the hearts of those who are doomed to perdition. So I think part of the answer is that God's justice demands that people actually commit the crime. That it wouldn't be just to say, well, I knew you were going to. So I let you. And I think that's part of the answer. But John has this vision. He says, after this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. You know, that answers part of the question, how many people are going to be saved? How many people are among the oppressors and how many are among the saved? He says it's too great a number to be counted. It's from every nation and tribe and people and language. And they're standing before the throne and they are clothed in white and they say something, but they are no longer saying how long. They're saying salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And then the angels, this heavenly court that is arranged around the throne, they fall down and they worship God and they say, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. And then John is asked, Who are these people? And he answers the question, I don't know, surely you know. And he's told they are the ones who died in the great tribulation. And they have washed their blood, their robes in the blood of the Lamb and made them white. And this is why they stand in front of God's throne and serve him day and night. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. Will give them shelter. Literally what that says is he has pitched a tent. Think of the Middle East. He has pitched a tent and he invites them in to celebrate with him. They will never again be hungry or thirsty. 
Those things have come to an end. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun, for the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life, giving water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. You know, if part of the answer is that God's justice demands that those who will perish be given the opportunity to to deserve it, to, to do something that deserves condemnation. It doesn't answer the question about the people who are, who are suffering. I don't know how many of you have seen this movie. This is a different movie, the movie Shrek. Um, and in it, there's a, there's a character named Lord Farquaad, and he is looking for a champion to fight a dragon. And he assembles all the knights together, and he says to them, some of you may die. That is a risk I am prepared to take. And it may sound like that's what God is saying. That God is saying, some of you may die. That's a risk I'm prepared to take. But remember who it is who's breaking these seals. It is the lamb who was slain. See, Lord Farquaad didn't enter into the trouble. He said, some of you will die. I'm not, I'm not going to die. But the lamb was slain. God doesn't sit up in heaven and watch us suffer so that he can work out some cosmic scales of justice. God enters into our suffering. God comes down and experiences the very worst, just like the most unfortunate of us. And he does that so he can bring us up out of it, so he can save us, so he can bring us to the tent he has pitched, so he can put an end to hunger and thirst, so he can give us to drink from the water of the springs of life. So what do we do with this? You know, the, the, the nature of the book of Revelation, it's so hard to figure out what are the applications. But, you know, I was thinking about this. It says God limits the destruction of the four horses. It says God doesn't do it. God has allowed these four horsemen who are always saddled up and ready to ride. God lets them off the chain a little bit. But even then, he says, operate within these limits. And I think as the people of God, as God's hands and feet in the world, we have to ask ourselves, are we part of that work? Are we limiting the forces of evil? Are we limiting the four horsemen? Are we saying to them, this far but no farther? Are we saying that in the field of politics or the field of military uh, uh, work? Are we saying that in the world of the economy? Are we part of the limits that God has put on evil in this world? Because I think that's an opportunity we have. Those of us who aren't facing immediate destruction ourselves have the opportunity to be the limits that God is putting on the four horsemen. And we can certainly be in prayer for those who are facing it in their everyday lives. God is not looking down from heaven and saying, I have to let you suffer so that I can work out cosmic justice. God comes down. He joins us in our suffering. And he makes the most amazing promise. He says, whatever you have dealt with, we know how hard days can be in our own lives. No one's, no one's persecuting us because, because of our faith. But we know how hard our lives can be. And God says, I will wipe away every tear. In the resurrection, in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more crying. I will wipe away all the sources of sadness.
How much more of a promise is that to people who have witnessed unspeakable horrors? God makes the most amazing promise. I have seen what you're going through. I have endured what you're going through. And I will wipe away every tear. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly God, we give you thanks that you are not merely a heavenly God. You do not simply watch from above, but you enter into our troubles and you promise to bring us through them, to bring us into your tent where there is no more hunger or thirst, no more scorching sun, that you will give us to drink from the waters of the spring of life. Lord, we pray for those who are suffering and we ask you, Lord, to be with them in the ways that their particular needs require. And all these things we ask in the name of the Lamb who is slain. Amen.